Welcome to the Sports Nutritionist Podcast. In this episode, we have the assessment team again, and we are talking about the bioenergetics practical because every intake, which is basically almost every quarter, we have a new batch of students coming through and they think they are absolutely killing it with their training. But unfortunately for some, that isn't the case. And so we have some really cool feedback for them from the assessment team as it relates to the bioenergetics practical. Now with this particular episode, we've got some footage of them all doing it. So that way, you know, they're not hypocrites or armchair experts. We, we all went to the gym when, when they flew up or down and we started working on the course curriculum update. So one of those days for the first thing that we did was I took them all to the gym. Cause I was like, you got to put your money where, where your mouths are. You can't just be criticizing people. You got to show them how it's done and credit to them. They stepped up and did. And so we will have an accompanying video for this to, that'll be going on our YouTube channel as well to check it out. But by all means, please listen. Hopefully this helps people. It helps you get in, set your expectations and get them in the right position for when you're starting a certificate. And hopefully it can help set some expectations from the get-go to be in the right place for when anyone who's looking at starting the certificate or people looking at it in the future, you know what you're in for when it comes to the bioenergetics practical. Have, um, have you guys seen Mike Israel's um, video on this? Have you seen Lyle McDonald's stuff? Yeah, <laughs> I was basically <laughs> calling out Mike. Yeah. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> so good. Um, and so Mike basically like has had a few attempts at like talking, like like demonstrating true failure. But of, but of, like, and then there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of jargon that goes into like explaining it when really it's sort of like, I don't, I don't know, like to me, it's like, you know, if, you, if you're an approximate failure, your bass, like the tempo, in your concentric slows pretty significantly and there's like an element of like self-discipline and like that, like you're just like, right, I'm accepting it. My tempo is going to be slower. If I'm grinding, I'm grinding, but I'm able to maintain my technique whilst grinding. And um, yeah, Mike seems to think that that's not the case. And Mac, if you've been watching it, then I'd say you're aware that basically Lyle's like, mate, you don't know how to train anymore. You just know how to take gear. Yeah. hundred (laughs) percent. Like that's it. I've been, I just like the banter. Yeah. Yeah. Lyle's, Lyle's take on it is pretty simple and I, I'm, I'm pretty on board with Lyle. Yeah. I'm on Lyle's team over this one. I love Oh Mike. yeah. Big time. Yeah, yeah. Big time. I'm team Lyle. Okay, so what's Lyle saying? Can you just, just, I haven't watched the videos. Saying that, um, like, so when you get close to failure, when you hit failure, yeah. consistent speed should slow, but you should like stay in the groove and like try and grind it through. Yeah. Um, and he's basically calling out Mike Isertel because Mike Isertel in a lot of his YouTube videos with like Jared Feather and those guys would be like, oh, this set was like one RIR, but like the last rep, few reps were just the same concentric speed as all the other reps. Like they don't, they don't look that difficult. Like they look like they're struggling, but he was like, guys, like even for enhanced people, like here's footage of Dorian Yates training. Here's footage yep. of Ronnie Coleman training. Like you're not reaching like concentric fatigue, like what these guys were and these points. And so that he'd look at, so he like went through and had video evidence. Then he'd go through with like a, like a, a timer and he timed the concentric. And he was like, as soon as you're within two reps of actual failure, um, then your concentric phase would almost double and then potentially triple or quadruple in the last one. Yeah. yeah. Last people always change when you close to failure. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So like Mike, so Mike was like, no, 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 I'm training hard, blah, blah. And then people like, like, um, Christian Thibodeau mm. got on, the, got on the bandwagon as well. And they were like, no, you can be one rep out from failure and not have your tempo change. Here's my set doing it. And I was like, you guys are just all like massive, like gearheads that like literally haven't got a result since you've like started taking gear, like you, like through, it's like through training or food stimulus, like, but like the, like the biggest change has been the pharmacology. Mm-hmm. And of course, like Lyle being Lyle in the evidence-based community, they're like, no, oh, this guy's an idiot. I don't necessarily agree with that comment. Cause like 
the the MV MRV sort of like mentality has its place, and I'm a huge I'm a huge advocate for like MAV MEV and MRV. Like I think visual tail concepts is actually quite good, and I use it quite frequently with my clients. Um, I think to say that he's not evidence based is a bit of a loose connection, but I do think that he does apply anecdote with evidence, and I think that's probably the realistic way. Like evidence is only researched once it's observed, you know. So these guys are out doing the observations first before the research can be, can be completed. So say, I don't agree with the RPE stuff, but I definitely agree with the fact that there's a maximum intensity, a maximum volume you can put through somebody per week before recoveries, recovery sort of that starts to dwindle. Um, you know, I think this whole concept of training for failure all the time that a lot of the, you know, the ICN type natty guys do, it's not necessary. And I think a lot of it is of, of late for the grant. Um, you know, a lot of it's filmed every fucking set and it doesn't need to be. Um, yeah. That's sort of how I, I honestly feel about that. But in saying that though, I think exercise selection comes into play. A lot of, you know, no offense to the ICN guys, because I know I'm sort of picking on them a little bit, but they pick five exercises that all have the same mechanism of action. And I think that's, that's unnecessary as well. You know, so um, being very simplistic in exercise selection, but brutal in its application is, is, is the way to grow. Yeah, look, I agree. I think um, I, with Lyle's biggest thing, it, it all comes from the butt hurt. You know, see, I'm just going to start recording this thing. His biggest thing comes from being butt hurt about that study where they were saying like 30 plus sets per muscle group per week is, um, you know, within two reps shy of failure is the optimal hypertrophy rep range for volume. And he was his argument was if you're actually training two reps from failure, one to two reps from failure, there is absolutely no way that you can recover from 30 sets a week. No, I agree. Yeah. No wasn't, the, wasn't the protocol of the study like real short rest periods and, and like, 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 I think it was like two, I think it was like two minutes or something like that. But yeah, so like that's basically where he was like, this is failure. So if we're at, if this is actually failure, my recommendation is don't do more than 10 to 12 sets like this a week. I think it depends on the muscle, personally. And and the person. And, and the person, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean oh, if you're looking at if you're looking at you know a, a slow twitch fiber like the medial delt head, for example, volume is key. You know, but if you're looking at the quadricep, for example, which is you know high percentage of fast twitch muscle, you're looking at intensity. So, like all of these things can be changed depending on that. I, I would never give somebody a, a, a side raise, for example. That would be six reps because one <laughs> one RIR or zero RIR in a shoulder side raise is always dangerous to start with. You'll end up you know, incorporating other things, but it allows for a much greater demand because of the fact that it's majority of it's is slow, is slow switch muscle. Rear delt goes the same. Front delt, I don't do a lot of front delt stuff because so many of my clients it's press. It's well, really. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if they do, they might do it once a fortnight or once every 10 days, but that's, that's a much greater intensity because it, the body allows for it. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think it more like, I mean, like how would you even quantify and qualify medial delt and posterior delt failure in isolation anyway. Yeah, that's exactly right. Regardless regardless of your rep range. Like, so I think it's more just to do with things like if it was like, hey, you're doing this thing that we can, you know, it's a bench press, it's a, a leg press, it's a hack squat, it's a, you know, it's a bicep curl, like a preacher curl, whatever, leg curl, leg extensions. This is people doing it. Um, this was them going to failure. Well, we'll crack on, Matt. You want to go through it all? Well, let's let's um let's talk about kind of like the purpose of the bioenergetics practical in the first place. Like, let's go around and just hear a little bit from everyone. Like, what what benefits do you see by having this in there? And Alex, I'll get you to go last so we get your view. <laughs> yeah, I I think personally the the benefit of having it in the in the in the course is exactly what we're just talking about now. It's the it's the Lyle McDonald versus Israel conversation in the sense that you can know all the data you want to know, but if you can't apply it or you haven't applied it to yourself, you're going to have a limit, limited experience in what you're trying to talk to your client about. So understanding exactly what the body has to go through to get to a certain range, a certain range of heart rate, a certain range of effort or intensity or volume um, is key to understanding or so even empathizing, you would say, with your clients. So knowing exactly what they're going through and knowing what you know, in, in some cases, you can almost feel certain things happen in the body in the sense that you can feel that that endurance come on at a much higher heart rate where the body just 
you hit a wall and then your ability to go and go and go. And this is, you know, this comes with fitness, this comes with adaptation. So as your clients improve, you can understand that there will be improvements in their output as well. If you have you no know, experience in that, you, you don't know what you're talking about. So that's 6 a.m. brutality from Phil. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's like anything. It's like, you know, you can watch all the videos on how to drive a manual car, but if you've never actually gone and driven a manual car, like you're never going to be good at it. So it's just a case of understanding like, well, it's obviously doing different exercises and understanding that it's how you would approach hitting a failure point might be different if it was like, say, a deadlift, a hack squat, or a side lateral raise. But actually having that experience in practice, um, yeah, I think is a helpful part of thinking about nutrition, how that would relate to that. Nice. Yeah, my biggest thing is just understanding how close to sort of failure they are with their own training. Um, from like you can see from the videos we get all the times that they're they think they're at like an RP8, but really they might be like a five. Um, just their own understanding of it. Um, so they can then sort of transfer it across to their own clients. Um, and I suppose how their heart rate sort of relates to sort of pushing close to sort of the RP as well. Because uh, I find a lot of people don't sort of, I suppose, take notice of how high their heart rate might actually get. Uh, they sort of probably sort of underestimate how high it will get uh, during sort of like resistance, resistance training in particular. Nice. Julia. Yeah, I also think the the um, the intensity, especially on when uh, when we get them to do the the cardio part of the the bioenergetics, um, like learning or knowing how having that short space of time and learning to push through to like the maximum intensity that they can for the ninety five percent, like to be able to actually go to that place um, is I don't think a lot of people would do that normally so just getting them used to knowing how that feels yeah experiencing a, a high intensity effort yeah. mm. i also think in 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 the older the older students as well and i'll use myself you know i'm 36 so understanding so that old, man. so old <laughs> what i'm saying is understanding that is it at my age if we do the 220 minus the age conversation in working out maximum heart rate understanding that there are times where you're training in the gym in, in a resistance-based scenario where your heart only gets to sort of, you know, 70, 75%. And a lot of us perceive that to be, to be you know, training hard. In reality, that effort to push yourself a little bit further into 80 and 85 and even 90% in some cases with compound lifting, that is possible. And some of it, like Julia just said, and even before touched on, people haven't experienced that before and they haven't actually pushed themselves to that intensity where there is that grind and that elevation of HR just goes through the roof. Yeah. Matt, are you, you're going to, what do you want me to tie it up? You go. Okay. So, um, there's absolutely no way that someone can practice in sports nutrition and not be able to understand the bioenergetic demands and cardiac demands of certain exercises that, and that they have on the body and on an individual. So they need to be able to effectively, demonstrate that they're competent at doing those ranges and getting themselves into those ranges and understanding what those demands actually feel like um, to at least give them some semblance of a foundation to demonstrate that they're competent to be able to coach other people through that as well. And so like we, I don't, I don't know, like from the assessment team um, who you, like who who you guys have marked specifically or anything like that. But every now and then we get these people who come from like a health science um, nutrition background and they really are opposed to this, even though they want to go down the sports nutrition road. And so to me, and like, look, Brody can probably like edit this out, but to me, it's a really oxymoronic concept where it's like, you want to practice in sports nutrition and you say that you practice in sports nutrition and yet you're completely averse to this aspect which is really foundational and key to sports nutrition. Like this is the applied sports nutrition part where it's like understanding the body's energetic demands when you're in these states and what it feels like. And so uh, it's like, it's extremely pivotal to understand that. Um, We get so many people and you'll see it where the very first lecture that we have is the bioenergetics lecture. And it's like, okay, well, when your body's here, this is the substrate that you're utilizing. This is your predominant fuel source, et cetera. Um, and people are like, yeah, 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 you know, like, and 
I know that when they're watching these lectures, they're like, yeah, sweet. So I can eat more carbs because I know that I train hard, but they absolutely do not know if they train hard. And so they're like doing the high intensity thing just so like, and, and the high intensity um, exercise that we're doing is like the safest thing. It's like, just do something safe that can get your heart rate to that zone. So it's not like a deadlift or a back squat where they're going to, you know, potentially pass out under load or get crushed by the weight or anything like that. It's just like, okay, right. It could be running. It could be a salt bike, get on the rower, skip, whatever. Like just do a low risk thing to get your heart rate there because for a lot of them, they haven't done it. And, um, just feel what it actually feels like because chances are like nine times out of 10 for these people, they're not actually taking their heart rate to that area where they are like carbohydrate predominant. And so they're spending a lot of time in this, uh, I guess in this intermediary zone where the fuel source is really just, it's either carbohydrates, fats or protein, depending on their fed state and fluctuations of intensity of the work they're doing. Right. So I think, look, that's really my two cents on it all. You guys have summed it up really well as well. For me, it's sort of like I'm, I am sit back from a compliance perspective and it's, it's like I understand how key this particular subject and aspect is for compliance. And so I'm like, it, it, yeah, it, it, it really underpins what applied sports nutrition is. Nice. I think the, the one thing that I'd probably add into that is um, – since we changed the bioenergetics to be at the start and people can see that when they go hard on a compound and an isolation exercise, like hard for them from what they've ever experienced before, their heart rate still doesn't get as high as what they think they're doing. Mm. And that is really key for prescription for both probably themselves, like you mentioned, Alex and, and their clients to know that they're not actually working above 85% heart rate the majority of the time they're in the gym, even if it's like failure. Like there's some people who do perform well in the tests and, and they do get above that on the compound, but most people barely scrape 80% on both the compound and the isolation, but then think that they're carbohydrate intensive with their training. And mm -hmm. so I think just having that experience of, where their heart rate actually goes and linking that to the bioenergetics for their prescription is the biggest thing to take away apart from the experience of actually knowing the intensity that they're training at. Mm. And I, you know, I think a lot of people also think they train really hard when they don't and they don't train hard enough. And we, you know, we've got the data to support that just based on the submissions. And, you know, what I mean by that is when was the last time that they, you know, like, um, Phil, we were talking about this just before, right? You know, everyone wants to do like their AMRAP set or their zero reps and reserve set and post like these like three or four exercises and it's the same ones. But like if your goal is hypertrophy and you want to get more hypertrophy specific um, results in your back, for instance, when was the last time that you did that on a lap pull down or like a straight arm pull down or something like that where you took it, it was like a, a, a 12 rep max and you took it to zero reps in reserve? because then you know if you're actually increasing mechanical tension in a quantifiable capacity, um, you know, specifically in exercises that target that muscle group, right? Um, when was the last time someone's done something like that where they've done it and they've had chest strap heart rate monitor assessing their cardiac output in the movement. And they're also, they might have a spotter assessing their concentric and eccentric rep speed and technique quality. And they might be filming it as well to actually really, get feedback to see that, yeah, that's definitely failure or they're just stuck. Like, um, Mike Israel was talking about it, you know, like getting, like getting used to training intensely is like a mindset. It's, it's a skill. You have to learn it. But once you do, there's a bit of a mentality where it's like, okay, like if it takes 10 seconds to get this rep, I'm not changing my form and I'm taking 10 seconds. If it takes 10 seconds to get this absolutely last rep, if you get stuck and you're stuck there for like four or five seconds, and you haven't moved for four or five seconds, that's a part of the mentality of that skill and the familiarity with that feeling. And a lot of people just don't do that these days. And it's not something, and like all, I get all the evidence informed um, professionals and researchers and practitioners all synonymously and unanimously share the same, I guess, um, opinion on it. It's not something that you want to be doing a lot of, but if you've got a, a four week training block, it'd be worth reassessing a couple of your key, key movements in that, that are specific to your goals. For a lot of people, it might be hypertrophy. 
Um, but for, you know, again, sports nutritionists and performance nutritionists working with athletes, we want to be getting some of that data back in terms of like your performance markers every four to eight weeks. Right. And so we want to know that that person, we want to, we want to know where that person sits in the spectrum of how intense they're actually applying themselves to where they're actually applying themselves and then how they can consistently do that as well. So yeah, I think, I think this, this one's a big sort of eye opener. Um, you know, <laughs> we, we joke about it, but, um, you know, we see people and they're like, they do their eight, eight RPE, 10, 10 rep set, which should be failure. Right. And they're like 10 done. And they just put the weight down when they're done curling. Yeah. So Alex, um, let's say like for the sake of the, the viewers, um, let's say like you had an athlete or someone seeking a hypertrophy goal and you discovered that they weren't training as intensely, would that yield any requirements like changes to nutrition? Like would there be any appropriate changes to nutrition uh, or what would your action be as a sports nutritionist? I mean, it's really contextually dependent, right? Um, And like (laughs) such a cop-out statement that people always say that. the answer is yes, it would change my nutrition, but depending on the context, it would influence what aspect of nutrition I'm tra- changing. So like if they're in a, if they're in a deficit and I've given them like a ton of protein on the assumption that they're, you know, training to failure and they needed to recover, then I'd potentially pull it back to give them more carbohydrates and fat, depending on where they're at um, with that. Otherwise, um, yeah, it really just depends on how low their heart rate is, but yeah, I'd, I'd look at things like, um, especially it may not, it may not change how much total carbohydrate I give them if they're, you know, in a maintenance phase or a performance phase and we've got them in a slight surplus. Um, it might not change the total carbohydrate that I give, but I'd be looking at their food plan. And if they've got a lot of sugars that they've timed around training, that's where I'd be adjusting things. And I'd be like, right, you know, that cereal that you're having, because you saw me talking about it in some video or on my Instagram story, guess what? Like you're not getting to a place that really warrants having that type of stuff where low food volume and sugary foods are beneficial for your training to avoid things like throwing up and, um, uh, you know, helping with glycogen resynthesis, because guess what? You're not really depleting glycogen when you're training. The opposite is also true though, as well. If you had somebody in a deficit who maybe for example was, maybe under consuming carbohydrates coming into a session and they weren't training to capacity or training to a, a high enough intensity, shifting the carbohydrates before or even during training in some cases could actually elevate that performance in certain support. As Alex said, it's context dependent, but they're the two moves. I like what Alex said. Can we just give the inverse conversation? That's um that's what I would do in a deficit as well. Okay. So so just to recap that um for the listeners or the viewers, what you're basically saying is if you've got a client who is not training to a required intensity, often you would look at, you know, how much carbohydrate they are consuming relative as a proportion of their total kilocalories and also the type and timing of carbohydrates around training. You may consider changes in order to put them in a position where they're more likely to be able to perform at a higher intensity. Yeah, position. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, that's for like performance clients, but if it's like gen pop clients who are sedentary, then and I know that they're not really getting up there um, or that, you know, again, they're, they're developing that skill. Then for me, it just enables me to comfortably bring carbohydrates down and have an increased um, fat intake for that person. And I do think though that when you're dealing with gen pop, like there's often bigger fish to fry. Um, yeah. And I think that just if there are like a carbohydrate meal in the hours prior to exercise, then for the most part, that's like goal. I mean, job done for, for a lot of general pop people who aren't like in it to try and be maximally jacked or perform maximally, but just want to, they, maybe they're interested in exercise, but their main goal is probably general health, weight management, and just lifestyle behaviors that align with like health seeking values. Mm-hmm. But this is not exclusive to, to gen pop. I mean, like even myself, I, I wear a whip strap, just as, as most of you guys know, and like you know, I'll use the example of uh, the Cybex hack spot, which is a notoriously difficult machine to, to sort of use. I'm, I'm doing significant weight and I'll do my, you know, my RP of eight or my RP of even six in some cases, sorry, um, RP of 10 in some cases, you know, with zero in reserve to the point where I fail and my heart rate gets like 142. Like it's really low. 
So, and, and I classify myself as a relatively serious lifter. So, you know, it's definitely not exclusively gem pop. It's, it's, it's application dependent and environment dependent as well. Mm. Maybe you're just not training hard enough, Phil. Maybe that, that NRPE is actually a six. What do you reckon, Alex? Other thing that that brings up, Phil, is like something, I don't know if you found this, something I've found with the whoop strap is when wearing it on the wrist, it's inherently inaccurate. Yeah, there's there's a delay in the reading and yeah, yeah. But there's a ten-second delay to the point where, speaking about Dean McKillop before, he actually messaged me and told me, "Do I get nervous before my sets because in my rest, my elevate, my heart rate elevated at about twenty percent?" And I was like, "Oh no, that's the delay between the readings." He was like, "Oh, you got to be nervous before you do a set," and I was like, "Nah, it's not. It's not nervous. It's it's the delay from the previous set." Yeah. And, yeah. I've found I found as much as like because I don't, I don't look at it during training because I'm more yeah. like just train and I look at the heart rate data after and when I have on the wrist and compare it to a chest strap there's up to a ten beat difference. Oh, I don't doubt that. Thirty percent on it, yeah. Yeah, I use the live feed. You know, you record yourself and it shows the live feed of the heart rate. I just think it's a cool little function to have. And, yeah. I mean, yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've hit 190 doing the assault bike, you know, which is well above my 95%. So, like, that's, you know, that's unless you've got my 100%, to be honest. But every, going back to the line and Jason's conversation, is every single person should feel what that feels like. That's a really, it's, it's, it's a, as Alex said, it's a must have. You can't move through this industry unless you know what to expect and what it also, the, the validation of, of, of positioning, what you're trying to achieve with your clients. One thing to add to that, I think, is also the practical application of just like almost a placebo side of things where if you are going to train that intensely or you plan on doing it, just understanding that, you know, you probably can't like you can't get away with faster training or at least it may impair you at, at the very least psychologically. So as a sports nutritionist, understanding like that you can manipulate nutrition in order to promote an environment where someone is in a place where they're more likely to be able to put in that effort and really get to that place of truth. Yeah. And like, you know, for instance, if, if they have a certain food, like like things that you can do as the practitioner to influence behaviors as well. So it's like, okay, like, this gen pop person who's a weight management person, they really like this food, which for instance might be, I don't know, 50 grams of mixed um, party mix lollies or something like that. And it's like, well, you know, we in order to justify the inclusion of this meal, we want to be having it, say, 45 minutes pre-training. And so that inclusion of that meal is seeing a, a massively increased adherence to them training more consistently. So getting in four to five sessions a week, whereas they some weeks get two to three. And then at the same time, um, you know, really hitting the intensities that they need to be within, within the training or just even the durations, right. Where the person would go in two to three times a week and they'd probably duck out after half an hour. They're now staying for the full hour and doing four to four, four to five sessions of that, which we know has a, you know, tremendous sort of, uh, impact on the overall sort of weight management and body composition outcomes to the person as well. And just to add to that, I think that comfort is sort of something that you touched on there, Alex, where, well, like you sort of alluded to it, um, where someone really enjoys their party mix. And even if the meal might not, not be optimal in alignment with like best practice pre-training protocols, if someone just feels good on something, they enjoy it, then, and it, like it doesn't cause them any gastrointestinal stress and things like that, then I think that there's often a lot of utility behind taking steps away from best practice in order to just to simply make someone feel good. So like I've had clients before who like feel great having like, you know, a hundred grams of oats an hour before exercise. And yeah, like as Phil would say, like you're not fueling that that exercise session coming up, but they just feel really good on it and it doesn't cause them any stress and they just really like it. So it's sort of like if they feel good on it, maybe we can make some small tweaks such as adding some like high glycemic carbohydrates to that meal to try and get some sort of fuel available. But, you know, I feel like it's not always just about best practice. It's also about, you know, how someone feels and and that is an important part of facilitating someone's best performance. Yeah, for sure. I think one thing we sort of mentioned, we were talking about like gen pop weight management and I just want to highlight would be, um, you know, when you asked me the scenarios and context of, um, uh, 
you know, like like how we would change things based on the thing. And I was saying, oh, look, you know, I'd feel a lot more comfortable going high fat for someone sedentary. Um, I just sort of want to highlight that and say, look, for the majority of gen pop weight loss and weight management clients, that's going to be the case for people. And what we tend to identify is that people who come from a fitness background come to like, like come into practice really early on where they practice more in line with how their, what their own experience is doing. So their experience and what they're doing and their programming at that point in time is really influencing it. And that might be like a natural, you know, an evidence-based natural bodybuilding optimal plan would be. So they're really like, Hey, 20% of total calories is going to fat. As long as we're 0.5 grams uh, of fat per kilo of body weight, we're fine. And in reality, it might be a lot more feasible for that person and better for them to just have a higher fat intake, you know, for, for their calories that at up to 35 to 40% of their total calories from fat, especially if they're relatively inactive and sedentary. Bill, what's your stance on that? Like someone who's sedentary um, in terms of like having more fats than sort of like the minimum to be optimally healthy and functioning. Yeah, I don't, I don't love the forty percent. I think that's a little bit too high. I think 30, 35 is, is tops, and I, I know the, I know the data says forty, but I think that you got to apply some of the sort of metabolic efficiency to that. Like, you know, you can, you can generate somebody's ability to, to generate, so to burn carbohydrates a lot easier than you can with fats. Um, you know, the body has a preferential sort of bias towards carbohydrates anyway. You know, so that's, that's the reality. I'd prefer somebody have ease of access to fuel rather than sort of the difficulty of breaking down fat. I mean, fat itself is a, is a costly energy. So I think personally running a slightly higher carbohydrate and giving the option to generate a high output is, is, is definitely preferential. But I definitely see that, you know, not trying to go around in circles here, but I definitely see why some would do 40. I just prefer not to. I think 35 is absolute tops um, as a personal sort of um, uh, bias. Yeah, I personally think that if you're going a bit higher on fats, you are sort of taking away some of the potential satiating effects of having like a carbohydrate rich diet. When we think about fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, and legumes. Um, I think it's like appropriate for someone who's sedentary to have more fats than an athlete, but yeah, I'm probably in the same camp as you there, Phil, where, you know, 30, 35% probably seems like the upper threshold that, because I just feel like people are just consuming a lot of calorie dense foods if they go any higher. Yeah, yeah, I t- yeah. I just, to be honest with you, but from a health perspective, I fully agree with the whole conversation around you know the fiber aspect and also the satiety aspect as well. Also, just the way that you know, without getting technical, the noble genesis works. It just doesn't work as much as it thinks it does. So, like, you can generate someone's energy output on carbohydrates a lot easier than you can on fats, and you see lessen the risk of fat storage, but you definitely sort of like preference energy production. If that makes sense, I'm going to use that very loosely when I say that, but. Um, yeah, I'd always choose a slightly higher carbohydrate than most people. And also, from a psychological point of view as well, it demonstrates that carbs aren't the devil and so much of that out there these days, it sort of helps that aspect of it as well. So we're trying to hit, you know, two or three birds with one stone. So what if you had someone who hates exercise and they don't want to exercise more than twice a week and they've got a sedentary job and they're not doing more than 3,000 steps a day and that person, because typically like what I've observed with that population is that, um, you know, we're looking at someone that's 30 plus percent body fat, maybe 35% plus body fat. Um, and they've got the, they're they're like pre-diabetic and they're in the pre-metabolic syndrome category, like obviously outside of scope, but cause I I know, like I know what clinicians will do at that point. Yeah. With that sort of stuff, to be honest with you, I'd, I'd probably, if that's the case, I probably would run a slightly higher fat. I mean, that's, that's a very specific case. I was like, you, you're honestly pointing that out. But um, in saying that, though, I wouldn't take that person on. They're not in my, they're not in my customer base. Um, I would refer them on to somebody who deals with more of that sort of stuff. Um, even from a, let's, let's, let's hope you say it's within scope, I still wouldn't take that client on. I, I would deal out with, with colleagues that I have access to here. Um, they're not my clientele base. And, and if I, but if I did, I would probably, focus more to use uh, um, one of Mac's sort of things is their bigger fish to fry, is their things around their their general eating habits that I would focus on before I start looking at ratios of fats and probably more focus on like grams per kilo. Are they metabolically healthy in the sense that are they getting the, the five tenets of nutrition with fruit and veg, whole grain, fruit, you know, um, things like that, protein consistency. I'd probably actually run that person with slightly higher protein content, to be honest, and, and help the society that way. 
rather than using like a super high carbohydrate um, intake. And that's how I'd really do it. Um, but still keeping their fats moderate and then allowing that body to oxidize naturally. Yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that's a cool answer. I think a lot of people, um, the, the, the whole reason I sort of like went on this tangent was because I, like a lot of practitioners tend to practice based on what they're, what they're doing for themselves. Right. And so if they're these evidence-based evidence informed sort of like body composition, body, natural bodybuilding, um, you know, best practice people, then they'll tend to follow those, the tenets of only that. Um, but if they're a newer practitioner, then they want to say yes to all clients as well. And so it's, it's really, it's what you said was really valuable in that you just wouldn't take them on. So like when you're talking about clients and you're like, Oh, look, I'd go up to say 35%. I'm probably the same. Like if I was, if I was talking about my, my clients, it'd be up to 35%, but then I'm really clear of what my clients are. And then, so someone in that population, which is more common in like just a gen pop gym setting or someone hitting you up on Instagram and they just want to get in shape where they're really inactive. They may only train a couple of times a week. They are pre-diabetic. They are, you know, like they have, they have um, hit a few flags for early onset of metabolic syndrome. And their body fat's just over 30%, which is relatively common in the general population. Um, like we, like the data suggests at least this point based on, um, you know, some of the top practitioners sort of in these fields that a lower carbohydrate, higher fat um, intake is going to be the most effective for dealing, like eliciting weight loss, but also improving uh, those profiles, the metabolic syndrome and pre-diabetes profiles in the short to midterm. Um, and so obviously like, you know, the thing that's king is exercise, but these people don't want to exercise. Right. So I think the ability to just be like, yeah, that's not in my wheelhouse and then refer on is a really big takeaway. Um, but that was just your knee jerk response as well. Like, it's really clear that that's not your client, right? No, it's it's not my client. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, that's good. There's so much more to it than that. I mean, obviously there's so many more factors you would discuss with the client as to where they sit. But that's what I would generally do as a first preference. I'd look at their entire history. And I, with someone like that, I'd do at least a seven-day food journal just to understand exactly what their position on nutrition is and where, they, where their understanding of the literacy sits. Because um, that's a very specific client. And like I said, like, there'd be a lot bigger problems in their world of nutrition than just how much carbs to give them versus fats. So that, that's sort of my answer. Um, I do apologize, guys. I have to go. Um, but I'll chat to you soon. Have a great day. And I'll see you soon. See you just to add to that i think that if you get someone who's so anti like exercise it suggests that they're not overly health seeking in their values or at least currently they're not over overly health seeking in their behaviors so they're the sort of clients who aren't really consuming plants so it's mm-hmm. like as to go on with phil was saying bigger fish to fry like that would sort of be what i would tick off first but then if they were you know probably pretty diabetic then you know, obviously for us sports nutritionists, the first port of call is a straight refer out. Like that's not our wheelhouse. Hmm. Matt, you got some questions around the bioenergetic stuff? Yeah. So let's move on to potentially talk about, um, maybe let's talk about the submax cardio kind of exercise choice and, and the things <laughs> that you guys have seen around people not being able to achieve their heart rates. So, um, like one of the big things is people who don't have as much power output and we tell them to go on the assault bike, they yeah. go on the assault bike and they can't, they can't achieve the output required to elevate their heart rate. Yeah. But, but then we kind of t- talk to them about doing a, a treadmill incline sprint or a hill sprint or a shuttle run and that sort of thing where they're supporting their body weight a lot more and they're using more of their muscle mass they tend to get a lot closer to their heart rate response, if not get it the first time. Yeah. But what are the, what are the other things that you guys have kind of seen around that, or or what thoughts do you have in that area for for people to kind of achieve that submax heart rate percentage that we asked for? I think uh, Julia touched it on earlier, but it's mainly sort of like um, same with RP, being aware of how hard you have to actually push to get your heart rate elevated. Um, so, like saying, if you haven't had a big experience in being able to push. Uh, yourself in that cardio aspect very hard. Uh, sometimes you don't know how hard you actually have to work to get your heart rate elevate, elevated that high. Uh, and it doesn't, depending on sort of what sort of cardio uh, choice you have, 
Um, some are going to require you to work harder, but I still feel like that understanding of how hard you actually have to push yourself, that maximal effort. Uh, some people just struggle to know how hard that maximal effort actually is to get that heart rate up actually high enough. Mm. Yep, definitely. Matt, do you remember back to like uni clinics with VO2 max testing and Wingates and stuff? And like the f- like, they're like for me, there would always be like a small percentage of people um, who like actually trained. And so like we're familiar with this, but the larger majority of the cohort weren't. And just the anxiety and freak outs from these people were like I think I, I think I always um, ignored all the people who didn't train. I'm like, you guys are never going to be a proper exercise scientist. Like, fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> like, there was there was defibs on hand. There was like, it was like, hey, the defibs here and stuff. And like, there were a few panic attacks from people because, like, obviously, like we're going submax. The whole point of those assessments, those lab that lab assessments were like full max, right? You had to have someone go full max. So they'd always get like a sporting person to do it and sort of show you how sun is like, off you go. Now, now you've got to, you know, now you got to go. And half the people who like doing, you know, ha- having a crack with the fit people and the other, like who were actively training and the other half were the people who hadn't like trained that hard. And I just, yeah, I've, I've just got some funny memories about a couple of a few girls and guys who weren't familiar with it. Just like having, I guess what I would call like what term panic attacks during and after like they weren't able to get there and then they, they, because it was so unfamiliar like you were saying forward like it was so unfamiliar that, that it was more of a panic attack than you know a stress-induced panic attack rather than stress from um actual exercise julie do you have any um thoughts on what you've seen so far with that sort of stuff or even your experience of it i think um well th- yeah, to what, going back to what you were saying about um, just people's own experience, whether they train or not, I get to see pretty much every day in the CrossFit gym where where it, people come in to do the class next and they see the devastation and, <laughs> and they're kind of like, I'm excited to do the workout, but that's going to be me in an hour. Oh, shit. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and then but then they used to see that on a daily basis and they kind of, they, they love it, but they don't love it, but they love it and they're still coming every day. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so people who train get to see that. Obviously it depends on what sort of training you're doing, but then you've got the people who aren't exposed to any of that whatsoever and they kind of will, you know, perhaps even if, even if they do train and they just go into the gym and they go through the motions and they're just so that they can go, I've ticked that box, I've gone to the gym today, I've done my exercise, but it's just a ticker box. It's not actually to reach any level of intensity or purpose as such. It's just to say that in their head they've done that. Do you know what I mean? So I think um, I think it's an eye-opener. And for those people that do train as well to go, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm you know, it may be a case where you're going, well, okay, I've, I did what I thought I was doing. So that's good. So that's, you know, yeah, I've, I've got that, the reps in reserve, I've got my heart rates reached this. And so that's kind of reaffirms that they're doing what they think they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you could say, oh, you know, it may, it may be a case of someone who's, who's already training and then says, oh, okay, well, I thought that I was getting my heart rate up. Um, I'm actually getting my heart rate up higher than what I thought I was, you know, what, what uh, my perception of that was. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting whether you're whether you train or whether you don't train or whether you've got any idea. Um, I think it's a good process to go through just to either reaffirm that you you kind of you know where you're at and like you thought you were, or um, whether okay, well I'm off in this area and that's interesting and you learn from it regardless. Yeah. 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 Exactly. I would just say if I were to give them any advice, it's like the whole thing, if you're going, like the whole point is we want to go to submax, And so you just want to pick something that's going to send blood everywhere and force your heart to pump. And so like you were saying about power or output, if you're going on an assault bike, like people might see the video of me get my heart rate up on the assault bike and think, yeah, that's what I'll do. And it's like, well, no, like I talk about it, like you have to have your RPM as high as like possible and then just like try and just sit in there and just tolerate as much like disgusting feeling as possible, right? 
Otherwise it's like, yeah, run, like running makes the most sense. People don't like running, but every single muscle in your body is moving. You got to carry your body weight. And typically when you've got to hold your own body with gravity, your heart rate tends to be higher as we can see with when people are doing um, like compound or isolation movements, if they're standing or supported by a bench, for instance. So, you know, just send, find something that you can send blood everywhere at a really, really high power output and very, very fast with, with a high lot of repetitions that knocks the wind out of your sails. That could be burpees. It could be double unders. It could be heel sprints. It could be just, just run for like five minutes straight. And then, gradually in the last minute, just start going faster and faster and faster and get to a point where like it's, it's hard. And then at the five minute mark, look at your heart rate. It'll probably be around like the 80, 85% mark. And then, then just try it, like find somewhere where you've got like hundred meters, 200 meters, like four, probably 400 meters. And then just sprint. Once it's elevated, just go for it because there's, there's other gears. You don't realize that there are, but when you do something like that, you'll find it. So, you know, just whether it's you, you got a chest strap and you got your phone with you, pull your phone out. All right. Four minutes is up, crank it for a minute. Then as you get into five minutes, you're like, Oh God, I wanted to stop. Look at it. Oh, it's not high enough. You know what? I'm still alive. Let's go and, and, and go harder. That, that, that'd be my advice. But that that's where the the learning comes from as well. So if you if you're asking for some someone for that short burst, that short duration to get their heart rate that high, um, for them to then know for future with their clients that okay, well um, you're not going to get that response if you perhaps get on the rower or um, you know you, you're going to have to try to do X Y Z. So whether it's hill sprints or assault bike or, you know, these are, you know, at least you know that what suggestions to, to, to come up with. I know um, that when I did it, I was, I, I tried doing it on the rower and there's no way for that short period of time that I could get that jump on the assault bike, got it straight away and you, and then I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. Let me do some hill sprints anyway. <laughs> just cause, I, just cause <laughs> I'm like, okay, what else can I do? <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, so then you find out where is it, and it may be something that's, um, that you don't want to have or it, it would be easier to do that doesn't require um, a lot of technique as such. So, for example, if you were going to go on the ski erg, um, if you've never been on the ski erg or it's not something that familiar with and then you may struggle to get that response just because of you're not entirely sure how to, to use it properly or or how to go hard or at that, um, you know, at that intensity for something that requires a little bit of skill with it as well. So, um, you know, same with double unders and that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm. So if we, if we piggyback onto the back of that with, um, the technique and skill thing, I think that's a really big important part of choosing the compound exercise. Yeah. Um, and safety. Yeah. So yeah. Number one technique, if, if you don't have the skill for the compound exercise, your technique's going to break down and that's going to be your 10 RPE before you actually get your heart rate response. Mm. Yeah. So when, we when you choose the compound exercise, you need to choose something that maintain technique under fatigue. So it needs to be something that's really familiar to you or use a machine that you can't stuff the technique up on, like mm. a leg or a hack squat machine. Or um, even even like a, a seated chest press or something like that, if you, if you can't do lower body, that's mm. supported, but you're still going to be able to take it to a true failure as opposed to something like a back squat or a deadlift where if your technique isn't superior and you don't know how to dump the bar in a back squat or you don't know how to grind through with a neutral spine and a deadlift, like you're going you're gonna to be taking yourself into places where injury is a potential. And, and that's not what we're asking you to do. If if you're super comfortable with those movements, like I would be pretty comfortable doing a deadlift to failure, taking um, quite a few sets of deadlifts to failure, but probably not a back squat. Like, yeah, no, I front squat over that, or, or like split squats. Like I do, I do a split squat variation for sure, especially because it's like because it's unilateral. Go to failure on one leg, then you got to do the other one, and your heart rate's already up. We oh, that's that's an interesting a side. Um, Brody, feel free to edit this out. It's we just say um take one leg failure. 
Oh yeah, but you know what I mean? Like if you get it and you're pretty much there, but you're not, you've only done one leg. Oh yeah. You just submit the second just time. Do the other. <laughs> Your heart rate's almost there. Just go now. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Ford, do you have any um, ideas on that? Yeah. Yeah. The big things I reckon that, that technique, uh, what you feel yourself uh, proficient in, like if you, if you can't squat and you haven't been squatting for a lot of years, don't choose a back squat to do a, like pretty much a 10 RM. Is that what it is? Is it a or 12? Yeah, 10 RM max. Yeah. 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 Um, like don't, don't choose that because you're not going to be able to hit the depth. You're not going to maintain that form. Uh, and then like not a lot of people are able to do that proficiently. Uh, deadlifts going to be a little bit easier, but again, like you said, if you haven't done a lot of deadlifts to failure, it's not something where you want to push the fire because you like just lock it into yourself. Um, but yeah, just choosing the exercise that you're com- comfortable with and confident in, um, hack squats, leg press are always going to be easier lower body because they're not technically demanding. Mm. Um, and just sort of choosing the right load, like even doing something like a split squat, what do you think is like uh, 10RM? You probably could lift more weight. Um, like I've had a lady lift, resubmit really it twice and she's ended up lifting an extra 15 kilos of dumbbells because she just was, she thought she was at that RPE. But it was more of sort of her heart rate wise felt like she was. It wasn't sort of that muscular failure point. Um, so just choosing that exercise and sort of getting the right load so you're really close to that actual failure. Mm. And that and I think that's a good point as well, is like people look at the 80% mark that they have to hit and they're like, okay, yep, I've hit the 80%, now I'm at failure. And it's like, yeah. well, no, the 80% is a guideline, and we want you to actually take a step to failure and see what your heart rate response is. Mm. If you take a compound exercise to failure and you're actually using like a large percentage of your overall muscle mass, you'll be a lot closer to 100% than 80%. Yeah. 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 And I think, Ford, you brought up something really good, right? Like if you haven't been doing it, don't do it. But also yeah. if you're following a training program, chances are there's compound movements in it. So just like pick one of the four or five that you're doing that you feel yeah. like. I'm pretty close to failure out already. And then just do that. That are like in your that you've at least had for the last six weeks or something like that, right? Pick one of those and then just do that. Yeah, that's right. Do it, do probably wanna do it if you're following your program, probably do the first set because you're not gonna get the rest of your sets out if you're taking the true that true failure. Mm. But you still yeah, you just that's your, your that's your one working set for the day. Like if you're pushing to that true failure, uh, you shouldn't be able to then sort of back it up and go do your working sets that you normally do. Yeah, good point. Yeah, like if you've got, say you've got four sets of eight or something on, I don't know if you're not like in a strength phase, hypertrophy phase, whatever it is, take your first compound accessory exercise and on the last set of that, take that first. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and maybe even leave a couple, like like hit your first eight reps and then see how you feel recovery-wise. And if after two minutes you feel like you can go again, do eight reps again. But if you're feeling like you're needing like a little bit longer you're going into that last set pretty fatigued give yourself a little bit longer rest or cut your rep short by one or two on the previous set and then go and then give yourself probably a good 10 minutes um you know to do it i remember i haven't done it because it's because because of my knee surgeries in the last like three years but i haven't done i remember doing probably like uh, it was like a deadlift set, like an AMRAP set for sumos back in the day. And I, I, so how old was I at the time? It would have been like 26, 27. Um, and I was, my heart rate was like 207. And like, it was like, I was like, it was like I was blanking out, like the, like the walls were coming in, you know? And like, that's, that's the, um, that's the feeling you get. If like it, that when, when you actually go on a failure on um, these, you know, these compound movements. Um, yeah. It, it, it's pretty interesting. I think one caveat I'll add in this as well is that people who come from like a sporting background where you played a lot of sports at a relatively high level, you can go into these phases easier than people who necessarily haven't because training is like with like, with never really harder than the games. And so once you've experienced really hard, hard matches, hard games, hard competition, then and you haven't done as well that's when you're like damn i hate that feeling now i have to replicate that feeling yet at training so that way i never feel that way again and so that pain of loss is a big motivator for why 
or, you know, fear of being beaten or whatever it is, is a big motivator to apply really hard training intensities and the skill of like mentally becoming familiar with intense training. Is there anything else we need to touch on? I think that's pretty much it. Isolations. I think, I think it's the same thing with isolations, right? Like pick what pick with isolations, pick what you've been doing. And I think isolations is where we see the biggest variety of like people just going way beyond like compounds. Like what have you guys identified now? Like I would say compounds can vary up to, they can get about say like 30% more. Almost 50% more for some people, but that's not the majority now. Mm. Whereas isolation can be like four, four, 500%. Yeah, they're supposed to get 50 and they go to 40. <laughs> Sorry, 15 and they go to 40. Yeah. It's a, it comes back to that sort of thing of understanding the RPE and sort of like the, the load selection and being sort of that close to failure. Like, if you have a good understanding RPE, you know, an RPE eight for say 12 reps, I mean, then you should be, whatever load you use, should be hitting that sort of fire around that sort of 14 or 15 reps. Um, whereas if you don't have that good understanding RPE, you're going to pick a weight and just go to failure and you end up getting say 30 or 40 reps. It's like, well, you don't have that good understanding of sort of what load you should be using for that sort of RPE that's, that's being asked for. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it sort of comes back to your own understanding sort of like that training experience as well uh, and just having that sort of being sort of more uh, smarter about your sort of load selection on that exercise. Julia, what did you do for your isolation movements? Um, when I did it? Yeah. Um, I think I did um, skull crushes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much what I did. Would you would you change would you change it to anything else or you just uh, no because I find with the skull crushes like that I I find it quite not not easy like compared to a bicep curl for example with a bicep curl you're more likely to try and cheat the rep yeah whereas I find with the skull crusher it's kind of you can't cheat it you like you'll fail it. <laughs> so um, with a spotter. <laughs> you can probably you can probably grind through a skull crusher a lot easier as well, right? You can push into the bench with your back, and you can go, okay, it's slowing yeah. down. But if I fail, I can just drop the weight behind me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some. I mean, like if you if you're experienced at curling intensely with good form, then yeah. yeah. But if not, it's like they're looking worse than Arnie's fucking Arnie barbell curl cheat curls <laughs> that he did back in the day. Same with dumbbell lateral raises. If you don't know how to do them correctly, pushing to failure, they can look very bad. Oh, I, I, honestly, like I don't know about you guys. Like, is it is this is this something where like where you notice? Or I, I would just like have a blanket rule. Like, probably don't just do dumbbell laterals for you for your eyes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so hard to see if they're failing because you like as soon as you get to above thirty degrees, the body w- will want to naturally drop anyway. As soon as you start getting like close to that. Yeah. Um, if you could recommend, like, what would your exercises be now? We'll just go through it, and why? For the for each of them. Yeah. So, what would you do for hit? What would you do, like, like sub max cardio? What would you do for compound and isolation? Okay. So, I probably I probably choose the assault bike because I know I can get higher response I want. And it's low impact for me. Yeah. Running doesn't generally agree with me very nicely. Um, yeah, probably, the knees. <laughs> yeah, knees. Um, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, then I'd probably do probably a deadlift because, again, knees for me on like a leg press or a hack squat or anything like that. And I'm comfortable with my technique in a deadlift to take it to failure. Um, and then probably. I would do a bicep curl as well, just a standing barbell and just like probably stand against the pole or, or, or stand against the wall or something to kind of just make sure that I'm hitting that um, that that cheat rep too hard um, and just, just be comfortable with that, that slowing down in the tempo as I get towards failure. 
What would you do? Yeah, mine would be pretty similar. I suppose sort of like uh, for myself, I'd probably do sort of something like the rower uh, or running, be able to push it. Um, I'd probably recommend for people to do sort of rowing and salt bike running as well. Uh, compound, I'd probably go deadlift because uh, I'm probably sort of confident in my own sort of technique proficiently to sort of push that to that sort of level. Uh, but for the general person, I'd probably say doing something simple like sort of like a hack squat um, where they sort of live more safer in sort of pushing close to that sort of, um, that sort of failure point. Uh, and isolated exercise, I'd probably go the same thing, bicep curl, if not barbell, dumbbell. But it's the same thing. It's just sort of like uh, if you've got the training history behind it, you can do that without sort of having to, say, cheat in your reps. Mm. Um, or even like a, just a chest fly. like. It's your heart rate probably not going to sort of be as high as something to where you're standing, like the bicep curl. Um, but generally, most of us should have to sort of push that to failure in that isolation um, aspect, and like you're not going to lose it. This is not a high demand on technique. Mm. So if it's me, like me, me now, I would go squats. <laughs> What's that? Squats for compound. Squats for compound. <laughs> Uh, but I can hip thrust. So yes. I, would hip, yes. I, would go, I would go hip thrust for compound. And guess what, girls? At a 100, at nearly 100 kilos, I'm not lifting over 140 <laughs> on my hip thrust. <laughs> and even then, there's like a bit of fall and breakdown for the <laughs> reps there. Um, so, yeah, I'd hip thrust um, and then... There, there's these um there's like plate loaded and pin loaded like booty builders the exercises are called now they're just like a hip thrust but um i'd go that over a barbell from going to yeah. failure um similar to what you guys are saying right like i would where, where i can have a machine in a controlled range of movement and then i know it's going to be safer i'm just going to do that um also if i haven't got the right weight or i can go heavier it's a lot easier to like load up the thing about like deadlifts and all that stuff, it, like especially for the first time is doing this, like loading it up, taking it off, especially when you're fatigued, it's pretty, it's pretty horrendous. So I'd, I'd recommend, um, you know, just picking something where it's like, you know, plate loaded machine or pin loaded machine. It makes it a bit easier. Um, and then, yeah, I do some form of like, I would just do a machine based either like bicep curl preacher machine or the tricep extension where it's the inverse of the preacher. Um, again, I would just, uh, but for all of this stuff, I would probably approach it in a way where I'm doing three to four warm-ups, even the same thing for the hit. And I'm assessing my heart rate response to all, like to all of them. So I would go right how, and I would assess the duration with my heart rate as well. So I like, if I'm doing say a salt bike, I'll have the phone holder, whack my phone in there, have my heart rate and timer going looking at me straight away and then have the strap on and I'll go. Um, I'll look at 20 seconds, see what's happening with the um, with my heart rate and then I'll make a decision, do I go to 30 or 40 seconds, probably give myself about 20 to 30 seconds rest, go again. And then the, that, that sort of second one, potentially the third one, I'll try and go a bit shorter on. That'll inform me as to what my working intervals really need to look like. And then I'll give it a red hot crack and then I'll have in my head, I might need to do, um, I might need to do an additional, um, you know, two or three of these to actually get it there in that capacity. Nice. And that's pretty much it. And in the same principle applies, like I do two to three sort of what, what, like, like semi working sets of all my exercises and assess my heart rate and how it's feeling. Look at like, I might even like, cause, cause the students are going to be recording them. I'd record it, look at, look at my bar speed, tempo, all that kind of stuff. Um, where I felt like I was fatiguing and look, look at what that looks like to inform, to, you know, help inform me as to how many reps I really need to be doing. And if I need more weight, more or less weight. Nice. Do you have do you have any ideas for what people would do? Because, like with technology limitations, so like they've got their chest strap and they're trying to look at it on their phone, and they don't have another phone to video with. Mm. Like the only the only thing that I can think of, right, is like they have a friend that they come to the gym. Right, with. I, I think if you're doing this anyway, you really like, and you haven't done this stuff before, you want a training buddy, you want someone to spot just in case. 
um, depending on your exercise selection. And then if you do do this frequently and you train with a training partner, it's probably a good idea to have them there anyway. So that way they can help, like they can help load the weights up. You can do all that stuff. It makes it a lot easier. Yeah. What if they don't have a training partner that they normally train with or someone that is keen to come to the gym with them? That's a good question. Um, do like my, my immediate thoughts are like, do you have an iPad? Do you have a laptop? Do you have a, an old like iPod or something like that? They can all be recording devices. Same way that we're using the webcam on the computer today. That can be where you're filming. So that way here in the phone, I'm getting my heart rate from you, but I'm getting my exercise recording here just on zoom screen share. Bam have it on um, the internal camera. Uh, not, not, sorry, not screen share, just Zoom. Full window, just record yourself. Yep. Nice. Um, and if you don't have any of that, just let us know. We'll think of some con- creative, constructive solutions for you. I think potentially like you're going to the gym, there's going to be someone at the gym, potentially talk to a PT, a gym, yeah. at the gym and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Would you be available to even just like, video me with your phone and then transfer it to me afterwards or mm. and and before you do that know have have done a couple of tests so that you know you're going to get the heart rate in that yeah. session yeah yeah and like let exactly like let the let the pt know let your training partner know have a couple of mock runs um it, like at the end of the day it's all just information collection and data collection right so it's all a positive thing um one thing we didn't touch on and i think it's really really important that we say this if you have, like, we know that bioenergetics, bioenergetics is around week four, yeah? I think we need to week four. What's that, sorry? We need to push it to week four. So, okay, so I'll just re-say this, Brody can edit it. So bioenergetics is around week three to four. I'm going to say that again because that was super loud. So bioenergetics is around, the dogs are just going off offset. So bioenergetics is around weeks three to four at the moment. And we've got in like the course timeline and all that stuff. You get sent the curriculum timeline. So you know that it's there. Hopefully you've seen part of this video um, and you know that it's coming, you know you, a little bit more as to what's involved. You'll see the videos and the lectures with it going through, through it as well. Um, if you have any form of health condition, injury or anything like that, that's going to inhibit you. We don't want you to do it. Okay. We like, like the whole theme was like safety with exercise selection anyway. Um, I can't stress that enough. So all you'll need to do then is just let us know really early and we'll work out what you have available to you. So that way we can get a submission. There are other things that you can be doing, but we just need a medical certificate and a heads up, ideally like at week one or two. If you come into us at week three and you panic, it makes it really hard for us to help you because you'll be stressed when you're communicating to us and then you'll be checking your emails every few days. And like we've said, we've got that 48 hour turnaround time that we have for the students. So if you can let your assessor know as early as possible, then we can work out a solution for you. And there's a lot of things. Um, and then just shoot through that medical certificate and then we'll be all good.